call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 90 of Call It Friend of the podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Anna Katirnan watch two films set in the early 20th century, 1984's The Razor's Edge and 1981's Reds. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. At the time of recording, you can find The Razor's Edge on YouTube. You can find us on Instagram at Call of Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there if any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Hell yeah. Have a good week? I did. Yeah, I managed to make it through the razor's edge. Mm-hmm. And reds mm-hmm. mm, today. Today. <laughs> wow. Finished to be fair, I did it over the course of two days, so I mean, fair enough. I, and you'd I already seen one of these before. Yes. I didn't expect to get through um, reds in one day, but yeah, I, I don't know. Opportunity presented itself here and there. Other people sleeping, that kind of thing. <laughs> the one good thing about reds is it's got a built-in intermission, and I think we should bring that back. Yes, I think there's more than one good thing about Reds. No, that's it. All right. The break. So do we start with your toss pick, with what you won? Yeah, The Razor's Edge. Had you even heard of this? I had never heard of it. I understood why within a few minutes. Um, Because it was so awesome, they had to keep it a secret. Well, I'll put it like this. It's, (laughs) It's extremely odd from moment one. Uh, there are th- two things that I actually loved about this movie. Uh, one thing I enjoyed, and uh, there's a whole lot more than three parts to a movie, so the rest of it was just bonkers for me. Uh, so, well, okay, I, I think the story is undeniably excellent, um, but no, so maybe the plot, how would I put it? You can tell that the book it's based on is really good. It screams, this is a good book, this is turn-of-the-century, post-war, style-of-the-wasteland, F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of fiction. I dug it. Um, uh, Teresa Russell is excellent. Those are the two things I really enjoyed. Teresa Russell, who played Sophie. Who played Sophie, yes. Yeah, she was definitely better than Catherine Hicks. uh, Than anyone, I thought. Uh, And I, I enjoyed Bill Murray even though he might be the main reason it doesn't work. Uh, But he still, oddly, that's the main reason the film's odd to me. I was was enjoying his bullshit, despite (laughs) despite the fact that it doesn't work Despite the fact that it's like 1920 and he's flopping around like a seal. He's goofing around like like Second City stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, anding people. Like, yeah, it's bizarre. That somebody now the thing is, Murray does distract from the fact that um, nearly all of the other casting and filmmaking is really bad. And what um, do you have any specifics for that? Uh, I can think of a some of it you could put down to Murray. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's a scene quite near the end um, where. Izzy, um, which should be a, just a dramatic pinnacle of the film, uh, Isabella basically brings up the subject of Sophie's dead husband and child, 
and puts liquor back on this table or whatever. And the way, the angles... Oh, wait, you don't like that shot where she's walking away from the door? Oh, it's so badly made. The, like, butler and Sophie saying in the background that she's like, no, no problem. Like, shoot it like Dallas rather than shoot it like that. Like, genuinely shoot (laughs) it it like a soap opera. It does feel a bit soap opera. That's fair. But I mean, that's that's Catherine Hicks' pedigree, kind of, you know? Um, She didn't really go on to do very much after this. No. um, But it's like, I don't know. Like, I'm genuinely, this is, a a lot of this is my market appeal. I'm a sucker for anything centered on post-war stuff. I I like the the two world wars. I think that's really interesting stuff. Those grand examinations of how it affected society. And like, I actually think the novel of this seems like it, it would have maybe got its its teeth stuck into that particular culture wave just like something like the great gatsby as i mentioned but like and the to be honest the fact that that manages to shine through is it, that shows the novel must be really good considering the roadblocks that are in front of you here because i think it, like the uh, Somerset mom finished his novel in 1944 and then it was adapted for the first time in a, as a film in 1946, right. and it, it was nominated for Best Picture. Or did it even win Best Picture? Really? Let me check. I can't remember. Uh, the 1946 one, it was nominated for Best Picture. Hmm. But uh, I've read a little bit about the original story of Razor's Edge, and Somerset Mon is one of the characters in it. That's right. Well, he's the narrator, right? Yeah, and he like he flits in and out, and he meets the Larry Darrell character, and then also I think something that's really different in this 1984 version is um, Larry's kind of search of like going to India and all this mm. search for truth or whatever inner truth, the, the meaning of life. That's it's much shorter in this film than in the book. Well, I can believe that. <laughs> It doesn't go on very long here. Yeah, no, no, I can believe that. I can also believe that in the novel, he probably didn't stop off at Second City for, to do a, a few seasons. <laughs> um, what were they thinking? Like, no, and I get it. I do get it. The film probably wouldn't have gotten made if Murray wasn't involved. But it, uh, I mean, this is this and Reds are quite similar in a certain way for that because they're in a passion certain projects. Way. Like, they're films that both got studio funding based on the star kind of doing one for them and then doing and then getting to do one for themselves like doing one for one for the studios because this one was like this razor's edge film it got funding because murray agreed to do uh the first ghostbusters film was that it yeah 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 that filmed this filmed for like a year and a half and straight afterwards he was onto the set of ghostbusters taking over from the uh from friend of the show john belushi despite being um I, uh, very watchable. Um, I did kind of uh, like. I, I was never bored during this, um, mm-hmm. but I, I like. I did kind of hate it a bit. But if we got the first Ghostbusters out of it, totally worth it. Uh, yeah, no skin off my nose. Quite frankly, I would consider it almost like a prequel to Ghostbusters. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Larry Durrell turns out to be Slimer. That's <laughs> true. It's definitely true. Um, or else maybe it's uh, Piedmont. <laughs> yeah, so are you on the same page as this slimy. one? Are, are you on the same page as me with this one? I think I maybe liked it more than you, but I agree not having read the novel and not having seen the 1946 version, but 
this feels like a poor adaptation, a poorer adaptation of a stronger work. I just get that sense. <laughs> he just from reading through the synopsis of the novel and yeah. going like, oh yeah, no, those those elements no. sound better, like the things that they've cut out. And I think like one of the big um, studio notes that Murray was arguing back against was uh, the studio wanted to set it in. Get like, out of the film. <laughs> the studio wanted to <laughs> Don't not make be the in film. the film. <laughs> he wanted to not lose millions of dollars. But at the end of the day, they said, no, maybe we should just lose millions of dollars. Yeah. No, they wanted to set it in like modern day. Ah, well, that's stupid. Well, I mean, you would lose World War One, obviously. Yeah, and what yeah, would that yeah. become? Like Vietnam or something? No, or that's... he just drives an ambulance around New York. No, because one of the big appeals, and you know I love stories like this, one of the big appeals is it's set in an era where the world was still relatively big. Yeah. Um, and like, even though he only spends 20 seconds there for him to venture up a, a monastery in India or some place, uh, you know, yeah, it means he, something Yeah, I mean, they more. actually went to India. Yeah, I know. You can tell the locations are stunning uh, when they use them right. There's other times where they just don't, and then you read that they filmed in India, and you're just like, ah, really, I couldn't have told. For real, I think this is poorly directed. I looked at... Uh, yeah, like at the... What's his name? John Byram. He, yeah, this, I looked this at is his, what he did like, before and after. Film, exactly, basically. yeah, yeah. This is as far as he got, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's easy to see why. It made me think of something like... Well, actually, no, it actually didn't because I watched this before I watched Reds, but Reds is a good example of how you can recreate an era much more effectively than this. But even something like, God, wouldn't you love to see, I don't know, James Gray and Charlie Hunnam team up and do this? I fe- <laughs> Were you thinking of, uh, what's Lost it called? Lost City of Z. Z. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, or like I, I feel like they could make this sort of thing work. I also feel like I don't know, there was an approach to casting back in the day that was all right with lots of things, which was that put superstars in them doesn't matter how pretty or how old. Hence, Gene Hackman becomes a sex object. But like these days, and I much prefer it, there's kind of more casting. I don't know. I can imagine in Larry Durrell's role, somebody like Nicholas Holt did these days, you know? And not just for the caliber of, uh, of his acting, but for his look. Like people were sort of skinny back then and a little bit malnourished someone like George Mackay and I know he was in a World War One film recently but whatever but like I don't know Murray just doesn't suit the look of the film as many He's people don't He's also too old Yes Probably I mean he was in his 30s when he shot it but he was supposed to be like probably a teenager or something at the start It had me thinking God I'd love it if they remade this if they if they readapted the book But they keep trying I mean <laughs> It's already been made into a film twice. Maybe you should just calm down and... I mean, come on, man. Watch the 1940s version. No, fuck that. This could be a good movie. Like, well, I want to read the book for sure. I really, really do want to read the book. I uh, I don't know. Who are you casting now? (laughs) Who are you casting as Larry Darrell then? Okay, I could run through a whole uh, alternate cast. Uh, I would cast uh, Nicholas Holt. As Larry Durrell. That's uh, who it got me thinking of. I'd go uh, Adam Sandler myself. Teresa, Teresa Russell. I would go uh, Lily James. Okay, I'll go uh, Olivia Coleman. In the in the Sophie McDonald character. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see at the end when we stack them up who's got the better film. I've okay. already got an Academy Award winner. <laughs> yeah, you do. But I mean, Sophie's <laughs> supposed to be young. Yeah, well, she's going to be... Yeah, well, <laughs> 
<laughs> she's going to get Like young, young hot Nicholas <laughs> Holt isn't going to fancy an old bag like, uh, like <laughs> Olivia Colman. Come on, it's man. Just, hey, this is my, it's my film. All right, <laughs> fair enough. I, I would get uh, to play Isabel Bradley. I would get Florence Pugh to play Isabel. Okay, I think I'll go for Scarlett Johansson. Let's do that. <laughs> Alongside <laughs> Olivia Coleman. Your movie sucks. Uh, <laughs> Elliot Templeton, I'll take uh, Ray Fiennes, please. No, I'm going, guys. Kevin Spacey, no question. <laughs> <laughs> Space Talk is, he was the first name on the, on the cast list. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, Gray Matterin, Jamie Bell. Looks good yeah, to me. Yeah, I'll take Jamie Bell as well. Okay. I don't, I'm looking at Wikipedia. I don't know who Mackenzie is. <laughs> no, I don't know. I've given up. I've given up on this casting thing. But, uh, Pierre. Piedmont, I'll Piedmont. stick with Brian uh, Brian Doyle Murray. <laughs> I think he de- I think he deserves <laughs> yes. to be in a picture without his brother sometime. I'm gonna go for God. Who could do that? I don't know. I'm gonna go for John C. Riley. Fair enough. Piedmont. I will take it. Well, I want we'll we'll pop through the development a little bit of how this ended up filming because we've referred to it a little bit. So yeah, Jonathan Byram reckons uh, that he he had wanted to adapt the book in the eighties, but uh, like I mean, he hadn't much of a career to speak of really. But he brought a copy to Margaret Kelly, who was in hospital after giving birth, gave it to her, and then mysteriously the uh, and by the way, notoriously the father of that child was not present in the hospital. But whatever. Then he he got a call the next day at four a.m. from wacky old Bill Murray. Who's married to uh, um, Kelly and said, uh, "Yeah, this is this is Larry, Larry Durrell." And then they dro- apparently drove across America uh, writing the screenplay. Bill Murray's contribution seemed like to be fair. Apart from when Billy Murray's on screen, the tone is relatively even if it's the film isn't well made, and there's parts of the dialogue that are clunky. The tone remains relatively yeah. serious. But then even with like, yeah, because Murray snuck in a, a eulogy to John Belushi when um, Piedmont was dying. He won't be uh, missed. Yeah, exactly. That that bit, which was, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's odd. I mean, it's top class trolling. Probably. Yeah, yeah. It seems that way. But um, yeah, basically. Pre-internet. And as you, as you said, um, Murray got this off the ground, uh, off the back of Ghostbusters, so fair play. But I kind of wish he wasn't in it. Daniel Day-Lewis would have been a good shout back in the day. He would have been a good young Larry Burrell. Yeah, fair play. Should we run through the plot a little bit? Why not? All right, cool. So, story begins in 1917 as Murray's Larry Darrell. Uh, am I pronouncing that right? I tend to pronounce things wrong. Larry Darrell, Darrell. I don't know if they say Darrell or Darrell. I don't know how they pronounce it. But Larry is correct. I can confirm that. <laughs> well, anyway, he's about to head off to war with his mate, Gray. Um, they're going to be ambulance drivers like Ernest Hemingway. Um, but that's also based on something that um, Somerset Maugham did. Well, this is, this is because this was before America entered the war, which is the thing that uh, you get to learn more about in Reds. These are actually good companion pieces of films. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. In a, in a That's way. why I was surprised. It was a, like seeing them both together. There's a lot of similarities there. 
Well, yeah, because you get to see America entering the war specifically from the anti-war perspective with Woodrow Wilson and stuff. It's interesting. And uh, yeah, wouldn't you know it, at war, Murray meets his older brother. There's this bizarre sequence of events where uh, two Harvard boys from a carry-on film um, have a <laughs> snow-white <laughs> ambulance. Hilarious. And they get this. Is, no, okay, all the fair Harvard enough. Yale thing. I mean, I said apart from Murray's performance, everything is regular. This is straight out of that the first carry on thirty film. minutes is insane. Yeah, that's like a national lampoon bit or something. Yeah, so they they come toting a snow white ambulance, and then they get blown to smithereens. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Bill Murray delivers this bizarre speech to uh, uh, Piedmont, who's played by his older brother, uh, which was meant to John Belushi. Oh, yeah. And um, he's also engaged to Catherine Hicks's uh, Isabel and his childhood friend Sophie is married to a fellow named Bob with whom she has a kid. Yeah. So far, so good. Yes, that is right. Cool. So uh, when he gets and back, at this point, he, we're like cutting back and forth in between like World War One and what's going on, or just yes. I mean, throughout like the first half of the film, it cuts back and forth between like what's happening to Larry and what's happening to in his friends' lives. Yeah, it's kind of like the yeah. From what Which I liked, I didn't mind that. From what I've read about the outline of the novel, it's not Larry's story; it's all of their stories, inter like coming in and out of each other's lives, basically. No. Yeah. I okay. Don't. I'll take that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I still I would like. To, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna read the book. Uh, anyway, so when he gets back, he's lethargic but still wacky as he pretends to be a hippo in a swimming pool while drinking cocktails or something. That feels very out of whack with what the film is doing at that moment. He postpones his wedding and he's got PTSD. Up. He's allowed to act like he's in a 1980s comedy. That was a typical. <laughs> that was a typical symptom. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's where that's where Second City started. It started in the nineteen the the late uh, or it started in the early nineteen twenties. Just physicians from the nineteen thirties watching SNL in the nineteen eighties, getting PTSD yeah. from the people they had to treat. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, he postpones his wedding and buggers off to Paris to pack fish. Uh, choosing it to slum it with the hoi polloi rather than get societally established um, by Izzy's uncle Elliot, who's the atypical wealthy American. In Paris, after two years, it seems like, but it just time is past. passing away. There, yeah. we don't really know how long is actually gone. Uh, yeah, Izzy comes to Paris, and when Larry still isn't ready to get hitched, she breaks off the engagement for good, and he goes and works in a mine where he saves a guy's life. And uh, this guy introduces Larry to Eastern spirituality, uh, so he buggers off to India. Now, this next section, I think, is really exemplary of everything that's wrong with the film. So you get this moving, really well-performed scene. Um, where is he now married to Gray? She's not the one performing well, by the way, visits Sophie in hospital after Bob and her infant son oh, have just been I killed. This scene, yeah. 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 It was amazing in a head on collision that Sophie herself survived. Uh, Teresa Russell's performance here is easily the best acting in the film, first of all. It gives us a glimpse of what the film might have been if the rest of the parts had been moving. And this becomes especially evident because (laughs) it appears alongside a scene of Bill Murray doing a hard day's night with homeless children in India. Yeah, he's getting chased down the street. He's getting chased down the street because he's giving out change and they want his change. 
it's terrible, that contrast, because that scene literally made me sit forward as an audience member and say, more of this. And to be fair to Theresa Russell, every time she gets the chance to act, you get sucked in like that, I found. For instance, actually, yeah, so Larry returns to Paris, where Gray and Izzy are now uh, living, uh, having been um, bankrupt by the Great Depression, and they're living with um, her uncle Elliot. Actually, another good example of just the lower quality of acting is... um, James Keish's performance when he uh, hears his father has committed suicide. Do you <laughs> remember that? start punching the glass out of <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's so bad. He punches through like a glass yeah. door. It's really unconvincing, that bit. I just And her reaction to it is like, great, great. It's just all terrible. It doesn't work. Um, but you're what the age, you know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, they're living with, they're living with uh, her uncle Elliot. Um, Sophie has become an alcoholic drug addict on the game. As you do. At the, In Paris, though, that's a bit better. Yeah, that's a step off, I suppose. Um, at the behest of a horrible pimp named Cesar. That's his name, isn't it? Coco. Coco. Yeah, of course his name Something, is Coco. Yeah, How Coco, dare I? And uh, yeah, Larry takes her in and looks after her and the two get together and become engaged. Despite, in this whole sequence, like despite Murray's 1980s style tomfoolery once again ruining the mood, Russell is good enough to like carry it and we once again kind of get a glimpse of how good the mo- the novel must be. Izzy is jealous of Sophie and riles her up about her dead husband and kid. And, um, you know, she's easily riled up because uh, it's traumatic and she's a junkie or whatever, but still, it's a, it has the makings of a good scene. Um, it's just like a scene where soap opera acting and actual acting go head to head and then just poor camera placement rushes in like a wrestler with a chair and bullies the scene into redundancy. So Sophie hits the hooch again and returns to Coco and a very, very badly staged fight scene ensues between Murray and some goons. <laughs> Do you know what I, this is terrible that scene. Um and uh, it didn't yes. bother me that much. It was over in seconds. Oh, but it's just like nobody's moving like they're moving. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's no weight behind you know, any he gets, punches. He gets kicked out pretty quickly. Oh yeah, anyway, it just kind of hammers it all home how poorly cast in. He leaves and Sophie ends up with her throat slit in the sane. Larry gets to the bottom of it and confronts Izzy for the bitch she is, and then uh, says to Elliot, he's off home to America. And then he runs up the stairs. It's like the opposite of Joker. Exactly. It's the opposite of Joker. This guy had the option to go into chaos, and instead he went back to America. (laughs) Yeah, where things work. Exactly. No more India for him, he says. Yeah, you've, you've reminded me of, like, the worst kind of Second City moments from Larry are when he's in India. I think it's up where he's going to the temple wherever he spends time and he's like there's there are women there's like a kind of market stall selling oh i know what you're talking about and he picks up like a giant a giant vegetable and acts like it's super heavy and then he makes a remark which he basically says like hey this is a pretty good audience i could just run my bits up here it's like such a weirdly 1980s remark about comedy the most memorable one for me is at the start of the film, when we've got like two minutes worth of establishing shots around this county fair or some shit, you know, you got your costumes or whatever. It's not fantastically <laughs> shot. It's not lit particularly well. But like it, the, is the, it is 1918 or it's yeah. 1914 or whatever. It like the natural does, a, does a better job of yeah. evoking the era, but it's still the era. You know where you're at. <laughs> and then 
he rolls over on the ground smooching that lady at the kissing booth and it's like what the hell is this a is this a spoof is this a spoof and then it takes a few minutes of back and forthing between scenes with murray and scenes without murray for you to realize oh no this is all just terribly misjudged but it got me thinking like do you think like people must have known it's that glaringly obvious how misjudged it is people must have known it when when it was happening yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's just a, there's one other one that stands out to me is when uh, he's with Sophie in Paris and they're out buying stuff like they're going through a market and he keeps doing the thing of like going away and coming back. He's like, "What about this?" So, oh yeah, yeah, and they buy like a boat. Yeah, it's yeah. he, like full on like yeah, rom com montage. Improv. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's exactly it's a modern rom com. Yeah, I mean, I guess everyone must have. Everyone involved in the project must have realized what it was. I mean, think about it. So, like, Murray's Teresa Russell the back didn't. Nobody told her. Balls, Caddyshack, Stripes, yeah. Tootsie. It's just pre-Ghostbusters. I guess Ghostbusters was a huge thing for him. I mean, I mean, like, that was like, you know, he'd had some excellent performances, but that must have, you know, put him in the, in the stratosphere. But... Like I've heard someone say, I, I can't remember where I read it, but they said like the failure of Razor's Edge was one of the things that pushed Murray towards um, kind of just answering the, you know, he had like that whatever like phone number where people would just leave messages for him. Yeah. Like someone was, I can't remember who it was, but they were suggesting like this was the turning point for him where after this film failed, he just sort of stopped trying. Yeah, the, well, the story of the phone number, just to elaborate a little bit, is that uh, he doesn't actually have an agent. You just leave him messages right. and he decides what he's going to do. Yeah, um, I mean, I can picture that, I suppose. I mean, he's, do, like, particularly in the last decade or so, he's worked so fucking much. You you just, you know, but it's all cameos and goofy appearances and stuff. I mean, by all accounts, he, he like, there's enough case against him to state he's not the easiest man to work with. Well, I suppose we're talking about cast now, so uh, yeah, there we go. We're on Bill Murray. Um, do you remember there was a time, I suppose it would have been around the, the the time of the release of Lost in Translation, that there was a kind of a newfound reverence for what Bill Murray was. Yeah, what do you mean as like a kind of elder statesman, the guy who would just turn up at people's parties randomly and be no, like, No, I think that no sort of stuff. Ju- you, or is ju- that later? I think that sort of stuff came later. I think sort of, like, regardless of where you rate people like this, he is in the sort of same family as performers like Jack Black, where he just delivers the Murray goods and that's that. That's what he has. I guess the 90s, things like um, Groundhog Day, Kingpin, Rushmore were probably quite big in, in creating that. Oh, yeah, and then he was in Royal Tenenbaums in the early 2000s, just before Lost in Translation. Yeah, I mean, fair play to, like, yeah, I suppose Sophie Coppola gets uh, uh, more of the credit than she deserves there because the real uh, art house introduction for Murray yeah, is, Wes is, is Wes Anderson for sure. Um, and him in Rushmore is, like, among his most enjoyable performances. Never mm. mind an enjoyable film, he's just, he's such a funny character in that. Um, you know, his teenage friendship with, uh, what's his chops, Max. Uh, and Jason uh, Schwarzman. How okay he feels with betraying him, just <laughs> and the line of the line of dialogue from the young fella uh, that they were in the pool giving each other hand jobs. Oi, 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 oi. Yeah, but then I mean, plenty. Of, well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't. 
you know, he like I said, he has worked an awful lot, and I haven't, I haven't seen every everything. Uh, the uh, Zombieland cameo was, of course, excellent. Um, yeah. One thing I spotted in his uh, TV filmography is something I'll never watch, but something I mean, I just say fair play. Have you, did did you read about um, Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray's extra innings? <laughs> I'm just seeing this now. Is it reality show? It's a reality show where they, they visit go, minor league ballparks yes. across the country. Yeah, yeah. Which is, oh I mean, what an abstract way to do your brother a favor. <laughs> well, um, I see like one of uh, one of Bill Murray's sons is a chef that owns a restaurant somewhere in New York. And all of the advertising is like, it's owned by Bill Murray's son. That's right. Son of Bill Murray is a fair chef. Fair enough. Whatever gets the punters in the door, yeah. I say. Yeah, I'm just seeing one more thing now that I would uh, like to slightly investigate, uh, which is him in Hamlet. Is that? Oh, right. No, that's the Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Yeah. Okay. Never mind that. He played Polonius. Yeah. So uh, what what do you think is your favorite Bill Murray film? Because all the performances are kind of the same. Let's be real. Charlie's Angels? Not Charlie's Angels Full Throttle? I don't know. I would say this is, I'm going to go out there and this, this is like uh, going against the grain possibly because this is um, out of order as, as the overall choice. But I'm going to go Kingpin because I was thinking about that recently. Every Sweet single move. second that he's on, he's on screen is hilarious. That's one of the... Uh, Kentucky. That's one of the great victories of scripted comedy is Kingpin. It's yeah. uh, absolutely terrific that film very very Woody Harrelson is on top form as well um, but yeah Murray steals the show in every conceivable way he's uh, yeah it's a very Murray performance I'd say the for me my favourite film featuring him is um, probably Groundhog Day yeah that's very um, nice yeah and I think the film that makes the sort of best use of his comic chops is probably Ghostbusters, which I know is whatever, but I, I just think he is very, very funny in that film. That's just because uh, you still. haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is true. I have not seen Ghostbusters. And you told me he's in that. Um, <laughs> he is in it. Was it Playing worth... Playing Dr. Peter Venkman. Was it worth the female Ghostbusters to get to Ghostbusters <laughs> Afterlife? In, and now thinking about it in retrospect, I think they should both be forgotten. Do you know... Uh, in my place of work, two people have like uh, defended to me the the female Ghostbusters film, and I think I have quite rightfully said to both of them, "Films just aren't for you. You're like bad at watching them because though it's not good." How did That's the what. how did it come up as a topic? Are you just like chatting about that 2016 Ghostbusters film? No, I was kind of ranting about. Um, the urge to just uh, remake things with ladies. (laughs) Okay, I didn't realize. Uh, (laughs) That must have been But no, I remember now, I remember now because uh, Bridesmaids had come up in conversation and I love that film. I think it's very funny. Um, Some of my my best uh, (laughs) film friends are women. That's (laughs) nice. Um, And then uh, I immediately used that to pivot to shit on the female Ghostbusters. (laughs) That's nice. Lady Ghostbusters. And then uh, there was a direct head-on collision with somebody who found uh, Kate McKinnon to be like the funniest person in the world. And, well, that's uh, not so good. Yeah, I just felt like we were on different <laughs> planets. I was yeah. like, because w- I didn't feel like they were being insincere, but I was just thinking, man, what you th- 
think is funny is what I think is annoying enough to go out with a chainsaw. I mean, I found I was thinking about yesterday again. Her role in that was oh my just god, awful. I had completely just forgotten awful. that. The odd uh, industry so person. Strange, yeah. What a weird. I mean, I don't actually blame her for that. I think that's just terrible writing. But no, I blame her for that too because I, I I think she came to that with all her McKinnon energy. Yeah. Um, that's probably enough to be said about Murray. Apart from, well, I mean, apart from, you know, that legendary story, I don't know that we talk about it last week on the podcast, but him throwing Seth Green into a bin. (laughs) We did. We did mention that. It was breaking Uh, news. Yes. Stuff of legend. Big fan of that. Um, and you know what? Apparently he was, uh, trying to smooch ladies on set recently, but I bet he was just doing a bit. It sounds like classic Murray banter to me. Sure. All right, cool. I'm glad you support me completely in what I just <laughs> yeah. said. Um, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until all the evidence is in. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to judge him right now. Guilty. Guilty. All right, guilty. fair enough. Do you I know who else is guilty? I away after watching this. Who? Uh, Teresa Russell of being the best person in the film. <laughs> That's great. And she's a lady. Yeah, That's yeah, good. yeah. That's important. She, she played... Um, she played Sophie, of course. During this time, uh, she had been recently married to Nick Rogue. They met on the uh, set where she played the female lead in his uh, film, Bad Timing, which is thoroughly disturbing, but really good. It's got that whole Nick Rogue sort of editing. You know that cut between chronologies editing that he does in uh, Don't Look Now? Like in Bad Timing, it's, oh, on, yeah. it's on crack. Like the whole movie is hinting towards a traumatic scene that mm-hmm. you finally see revealed at the end. Oh, nice. But it's really good. Art Garfunkel is in it. Um, and you'll never listen to that band, uh, that that duo the same way again. Um, but yeah, she is great in this. She has, she, by all accounts, had a good career after the after uh, Razor's Edge. I haven't seen much of it except for Spider-Man 3. I saw, I, I, I've seen that. Uh, I can't remember who she is in it. But she has one role in common with uh, the other female lead in this film. Do you know who uh, Teresa Russell and Catherine Hicks both played? At one point or another? Give me a clue, because I don't know. Uh, somebody, this is someone I'll be able so, to guess. Somebody, Margaret Thatcher. I, somebody also did a, very recently did a famous portrayal of this character. I need more. Give, who was the, This real-life character. I need more than that. I'm not searching. Uh, you'll get it. I'm not so, searching. This real-life character person? in a new film directed by the same guy who introduced Eric Bana to the world. I don't, I don't know. What was there? Oh, okay. Mar- Marilyn Monroe. Yes, very good. There we go. Wait, wait, uh, wait. But she didn't. One of them like study. Oh, I know. No, no. I'm thinking of Reds. One of the the actresses, Maureen Maureen Stapleton from Reds. Um, she was friends with Marilyn Monroe. They studied together in the like actors' studio in Strasbourg. The Strasbourg yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Teresa Russell studied there as well. She oh, played nice. Marilyn Monroe in a kind of a an alternate history weird thing, and Catherine Hicks did it in a TV movie of the week. Catherine Hicks, who plays Izzy in this, who is a TV soap actor later, Next Generation, also played Monroe. Probably, we could agree she's pretty terrible in this. There's one scene in particular which I, I I did write a note about, which I would like to bring to your attention. See, do you remember it? Well, let, let me. I wonder if it's the same one. I her worst that I recall is her reacting to something and starting wailing. I think it might be because it's near the end. Yes, it reminded me of in With Nail and I, where 
he's been caught drunk driving and but in Whitnell and I it works because it's a bizarre film and this they're they're trying to arrest Whitnell and everybody's trying to manhandle him and all of a sudden this cop yells out get in the back of the van in oh, this yeah, really yeah, screechy classic. way it's classic uh, in The Razor's Edge Catherine Hicks does her version of it which is near the end where she's trying to do her quiet manipulation oh no 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 it's when she says to Sophie at dinner that she'll buy her a wedding dress yeah. and she says no we're fine with this and then she just y- y- yerps out don't be stupid Sophie and it's just like <laughs> you know she's supposed to be hiding her true feeling it's just a terrible terrible little piece of acting now, the one I was thinking of is when Elliot dies and she just goes mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which brings us to our next, uh, Denholm Elliott. Yeah, um, Denham Elliott, legend. Yeah, exactly. Ro- Roger Ebert said the go-to English character actor, of course, famous from the uh, Indiana Jones films. Presume he's dead now. Uh, friend of the show. He shall he be missed. He died of AIDS. <laughs> did he die of AIDS? Yeah, he did. He was married to uh, a lady about 20 years younger than him for 30 years. They lived in Spain, actually. And um, at the same time, he was going away doing films, having orgies with literally everyone and anyone and everyone. And Are uh, you- yeah, he ended up getting AIDS. Yeah, no, he died in like 91 or something. No, you see, I believe you because you never went to it's Second true. City. So no, I know yeah, you're not so, making yeah, this Yeah, no, I know. This is true. This is you you true. didn't go to lying school, comedy no, lying it was, school. It's really tragic, actually, because his, his daughter killed herself when she was about 37 or something. She hung herself. And then his his uh, widow moved back to London. And I think when she was in her 60s, this is not that long ago, like 10 years ago, she was in her 60s in a wheelchair. There was a fire in her flat and she she like, was screaming and burned to death. She just Jesus. had like the most, just a, after his death, like his family just had the most awful, awful tragedies. The curse of the razor's edge. <laughs> no, but they were ripped apart, I think, by his... <laughs> Like lies and, well, that too, but... (laughs) Got a a solid segue coming up. Unlike the Keech clan... It's Keech. That's that's Stacey Keech's brother. Yes, I know. He's okay. Stacey... Yes, he's the younger brother of Stacey Keech Jr. um, Yeah. Who also got to half name... American History X, legend. Yes, that's right. He also got to Cameron from American History X, who also, yes. and also uh, the lead boxer, the lead drunken boxer in Fat City and a few other things. Oh, nice. And uh, he also got one Great. half, he, no, he also got one half of James Keech's, uh, Keech's Keech children <laughs> named after him. Because uh, get this for a solid friend group, right? Do you know about this? Their friend no. group? Oh man, they got a solid friend group. group, right? So uh, Keach James married uh, Jane Seymour. And the couple oh yeah, t- it's like Johnny Cash and everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Jo- uh, John Stacy, named for Johnny Cash and Stacy Keach, and Christopher Stephen, named for Christopher Reeves, and then um, Christopher Walken, named for uh, the opposite of Christopher Reeves. But this is this is the curse. So Johnny Cash and Christopher Reeve both died after the naming of this child. Well, this the curse of the razor's edge continues. <laughs> yeah. I think. Don't think there's any other way to look at it, to be honest. It took it took Cash and Reeve straight off the board. Uh, and then, of course, um, there is one um, member of this cast that uh, has historically just wrought havoc all around Hollywood, murder a horrible person to be around, generally a degenerate. Who is it? That's right. You've guessed it, folks. Brian Doyle Murray. What's his deal? 
I mean, no, just... I, I've done a, I've done a very layered reference to what Norm Macdonald used to do with okay, Frank Stallone right. as a punchline. You've guessed it, Frank Stallone, because he's, uh, he's the brother. Because yeah. he's the brother, exactly. Yeah, Brian Doyle Murray. One is of basic... the brothers. There's like a million of the of the Murrays. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, Joel when... Murray. But Brian Doyle Murray, Murray is a good actor. He's actually he's, he's, he's good in this. He's good in this. Like, yeah, he's one of the few people who's like, and also he's in the same scene as the ridiculous Harvard guys which is yeah. just nuts that's a nuts 20 minutes in the movie that that's in it when they start shooting through the car that's a, that is a Monty Python sketch that section of the film also he was in uh, JFK playing Jack Ruby it's not yeah bad. well cast for that I would say mm-hmm. uh, yeah overall uh, I'm I have an opinion of this film now uh, I I actually, you know, I didn't hate watching it at all, uh, it at all but I'll uh, probably never watch it again. Uh, do you know what? If it's on TV again, I might go, man, check out this weird movie that Bill Murray did one time. Um, I but find it very, I mean, I find it entertaining. Like you said, it's never boring, but my main takeaway is it's an incredibly strange film. Yeah. The, the some certain choices that were made, the idea of, yeah, having like a comedy actor infusing it with sort of modern improv is really, really weird. But I liked it. I, I the fact that it, like it gave me this story that like yeah, I like you, I would definitely think about going going and reading the novel. Yeah, it's such a strange thing to say to watch a film and go I can see this film is pants, but I do reckon this novel is good. It's supposed to work the other way around, you know? Anyway. Anyway that's enough so about the razor's the, edge. Yeah, the razor's edge is finished forever. All right. So but you selected Reds. Yes. 1981's Reds as the Saw it years ago. Pick. Thought it would make a good companion pick from what I knew about the razor's edge. Um, and I have to say, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Go. <laughs> Go. I think, I, I mean, what was the last epic like this that you can remember... I mean, oh. like modern, modern. Like attempt to tell a story like this. Yeah. I when can't was, think of anything off the top of my head. When was Gandhi made? That's like in the 80s. That's like Well, this is 81, isn't something. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's possible Gandhi like, is the last one. Can you think of anything in more recent? Than that? It's just, it feels like... I mean, oh, I don't know that I can, no. This only cost 32 million. I mean, I don't. That's which was inflated cost at the time. So, yeah. it, it cost more than they had planned on spending on it. Right. Um, no, I don't. Well, do you know what? I said no because it's fictional, so it doesn't count. I was going to say something like the English patient is quite is told on quite an epic backdrop. Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's the kind of thing I was thinking about. That type of epic. But this is epic biopic, which is a different thing. Like this is the John Reed story. One thing that's so wonderful about this is the talking heads infuse it with, it's not yeah. just John Reed, it's this generation that was real. And they give, the talking heads give such a gravity to all the storytelling that it, re- and now to be fair, other credit where due, I think most of the performance are really good. I think the cinematography is excellent. I think uh, the... And well, it's it's not an odd thing to mention. It's just something we don't mention very often. But the set dressing in this film feels like houses back in the shitty, shitty day. Do you know what I mean? Which um, do you mean the Soviet houses or no? Even the houses in, in America, like uh, the house where um, Louise Bryant and John Reed uh, live together, or even the Provincetown house. They just and feel some of that stuff is not. I mean, it's not even filmed in the U.S. That's mostly filmed in England. 
I mean, I like one of my questions were well, like I had questions down the way, but uh, where where did they film Russia? Russia's Finland. Okay, okay, yeah, I I, I don't know. A, a, Henry Miller is one of the the talking heads, I believe. He says, yeah, he says uh, everybody was fucking back then, but uh, you know, I it's see a, there was love. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Um, which if you've ever, um, I was, cause I saw he was one of the talking heads and I've read one of his books. I read Tropic of Cancer and like Tropic of Cancer is a dirty book. And then when that talking head said that, I said, I bet that's Henry Miller looked it up. <laughs> that is indeed Henry Miller who says that. Some of those talking heads, they started filming in about the early seventies. Wow. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of them died just before or just after the film came out because they were mostly born in like the late 19th century mm. that's yeah, that is a mad thing that I, I, that's the part that i liked the most about this film probably was was watching those interviews with people who you know yeah. grew up in a time like they were adults during the exactly. first world war that's and then they mental uh, and they get some things wrong and go back and correct themselves. It really mm-hmm. adds a gravitas to the whole thing. And it kind of gives license to play with the truth a little bit because you can see these people contradicting one another and you realize there's no straight way to tell this story, basically. You've mm-hmm. got, uh, because there are contradictions in, in things like, and there are some things that are, are definitely different, confirmed different, but ultimately the main details are the same. Um, I would say it slows down a little bit for the last 40 minutes, a, a little bit too much. Uh, it loses a bit of its thrust, but certainly the, the first half know, of the film. you're talking about like the last 40 minutes also has the, the train sequence. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I just found the the cat and mouse with him trying to get back to Louise a bit a little bit tiresome after a while. It's maybe it's because I knew where it was going. Um that's possibly it. Um but I th- that did tire me out a little bit, but I'm only saying a little bit. Like I said at the very start, I really enjoyed this and I was looking forward to it and I enjoyed it more than I was expecting to. Um I think Warren Beatty did it just an incredible job. Uh, whoever's idea was the talking heads, fair play to them. But when it, as far as Warren Beatty's idea, when it comes to like a recreation of the period, like it's not quite on the level of something like, do you know what? It's in the same ballpark as something like not, not as good of a film, but in, in something like the Godfather in utilizing lighting and set dressing to evoke a period where all the actors are clearly from another period. Mm-hmm. Like the only per- Diane Keaton looks like maybe she could be of the period. Um, and another thing actually that occurs in this film is there's plenty of films where male figures have obsessed over Diane Keaton. And uh, it was only in reds. I kind of, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I don't know. She seemed like the like the first manic pixie dream girl. Do you think? There's something I, about that. I mean, they, uh, just reading about her a little bit, everyone said that she's so wacky, she's so kooky. Oh, you mean her, she's like, like actual Diane yeah, Keaton? Not, I don't mean the character. Not Louise Bryant. I mean, no, okay. I'm talking yeah. about Yeah, Diane no, no, Keaton. for sure, for sure. The, 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 she absolutely, unequivocally is the first manic pixie dream girl. Everyone's just going on about how she's like, she's so different. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I did find myself watching it going like her. So I don't know. I don't know. Because she dated Al Pacino as well as Warren Beatty, Woody Allen, whatever. I mean, he was probably, <laughs> <laughs> he no, was probably no, thinking no, yeah. about other stuff at the time. <laughs> but, 
Well, no, you see, I believe um, she was adopted by Mia Farrow first. So <laughs> okay, that makes who could sense. resist? Forbidden <laughs> yeah. um, fruit. I was thinking about uh, this time period and this story. I think I might have studied some of it at school, but in general, I didn't know anything about the Russian Revolution. Very, very little. Obviously, I know like a little bit about some of the people, but I didn't know anything about John Reed, Louise Bryant, or this story at all, really. Hmm. Well, I mean, I yeah, it, it would be something that I was like, I'm I'm into this uh, a little bit. This time of the century and the sort of reds around the world. There was reds everywhere at this time. Yeah, it seems like commie gobbledygook to me. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it was a bunch of fucking commie gobbledygook. But I mean, Reed kind of reneges on his commieism towards the end. But I think it has that nice arc that loads of films like this seem to have, which is <laughs> you eventually get fed up of this shit and kind of just want a bit of domestic bliss. And that's kind of where their story ends. Do you know what's a good companion piece to this? Have you ever seen, um, I mean, it's quite a long film as well, so it would be a long day at the cinema, but have you ever seen The Better Meinhof Complex? No. I mean, it's very, very good film. Uh, for Like, do you know who, what The Better Meinhof Complex was? Uh, they were some kind of communist group or something? Yeah, they were a communist uh, paramilitar- paramilitary yeah. terrorist organization. Uh, terrorist, in- I think you'll find. In uh, in Germany um, in the 1970s that were like getting support directly from Moscow to try and undermine the um, West German government. Um, but you kind of, you know, like it starts very similar for, for a lady who ended up being one of the heads of the Bader Meinhof group. She's just in her like regular married life and she's like, I'm fucking kind of bored with this. I kind of want to fancy doing something else and gets involved with a load of reds and it gets crazy. And then by the time, you know, they fancy maybe backing off a little bit from all the extremism, it's a little bit, it's, it's gone too late and uh, they can't be doing it, you know? It's just, like it's an interesting plot structure, not least for the fact that both stories are real. John Reed, some people deny it, but most sources agree, was sort of backing away from Bolshevism and wanted to go back into mainstream socialism. At, well, I mean, how after spending a bit of time in Soviet Russia, I'm sure it would prove difficult to not not land on that point. The same thing happened to Albert Camus and everything around. Well, but Reed uh, didn't even see the end. I mean, Reed died in 1920, so that was, you know, the revolution he, hadn't finished until, what, 1923? Well, yeah, I mean, you had the, the Civil War to go through, but the thing yeah. is, uh, like, the Russian Revolution was bloody from the beginning, you know what I mean? He would have been in town where they shot the Romanovs and their children and stuff, you know, and it would have been widely enough known stuff, people evicted from their land, you know, everybody, to like... Yeah, some people would would say that you know no Reed would have been all about it, but an awful lot of sources say that it was his time in Russia that saw him. He only he has like that one second line in the film where he's like, "Yeah, we need to basically we need to kill people." It's towards the end at some point he's like, "Yeah, we need to." I can't remember the exact wording, but it's like mm. we need to get death squads out, basically. Yeah, and like. Where do you think Beatty would land on all of this politically? Do you think he just thought of Reed as a interesting adventure man, or do you think? Well, apparently he was like into the idea from the sixties. He was he's, a he was a he was a commie. 
Well, he'd like come across the story about Reed from as early as like the early 60s and, you know, wanted to get it made. Mm. There was the the Russian film Red Bells. The also Russian about director, Reed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Russian director Sergei Boncharuk wanted Bon Bondarchuk, uh, the guy who made uh, War and Peace. He wanted to cast Warren Beatty in the film, but he ended up going for uh, Enemy of the Show Franco Nero instead. Ah, for Red uh, Bells and Red Bells. Late, late, late husband of Vanessa Redgrave. Well, he's still alive. Franco Nero. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because he's an enemy of the show. show. All right. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's okay. still alive. Um, but yeah, so but, he'd, I mean, he'd, be, he'd be trying to the the he'd been trying to make this film since the sixties, basically, and it took a long time. And as you said, like our, it's kind of a similar to 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 Mari wanting to make Razor's Edge. Studios must have just been telling him like, "Don't do this." It was a t- one of the people who told him not to do it was Robert Town. Another was Pauline Kale was was saying to. To Warren Beatty, not yeah, yeah, not to make the film. Uh, well, like, I mean, I haven't heard you say give an ex- an opinion as explicit as as mine. Where did you land on this? Yeah, I thought it was excellent. I think that <laughs> there's part of me that just goes, "What a weird thing to make a film about." Yes, in 1981, it, it, it's so strange. It's bizarre to make a film like this that feels almost pro-communist at this point of the cold war <laughs> it's fan- so it's, it, it's it's fantastic for that though isn't it yeah yeah i think it's really interesting i think uh, as you've mentioned all the points about how well made it is the actors are all great the script is solid apparently warren Beatty was doing you know like 70 takes 80 takes going up to huge numbers for some of the scenes so and it made its money back yeah it did it made a slight profit so I mean, yeah, I, I, if we've said this about multiple things that the, the, that we've watched, but they don't make films like this anymore. No, for this hell no. Level of for the, on this scale with this cast to tell the story I, of a guy who went and watched the Russian Revolution. The studio system has sort of changed so that, like, it's quite possible that Tom Cruise is the last movie star with clout like this. Yeah. That can, because like even the fucking Avengers or whatever, the Avengers, all of them can be replaced. Yeah. Disney don't give a fuck. Same with anybody who's in Star Wars. Nobody gets to be bigger than the franchise or bigger than the studios. But the fact is, going back until the 1970s, Warren Beatty was contending with studios and winning. He was getting things made. A lot of the time, annoying people like and get, like he was like ruining friendships and making them back up again. Like he burnt bridges with Robert Town so many times over the years, but he was a big enough star, which is bizarre because he didn't have as exuberant a, a career as some of his seventies peers post seventies. You could say he wasn't as prolific. He, he really, yeah, he really stopped making films. Yeah, but I mean, he was... The stuff that he did make were things that seemed like clear passion projects as well, where you're like, Dick Tracy. I remember yeah. watching that at the time thinking... Gee, I, I think I saw weird, that weird film. soon enough after it came out, actually, mm-hmm. um, Dick Tracy. Um, Madonna's in that, right? She would yeah. have been... He's, he's very busty. She's very busty, is she? Mm-hmm. It's a, And it, like they do it... In, in very much a comic strip, like yeah. almost real life cartoon style. And then like of his other films directed, I can't think of any that I've, oh no, I've seen um, the one he co-directed, uh, Heaven Can Wait, which is the one oh, that yeah. got it. 
got him the clout to make this. I understand yeah, that that he that had a like the the budget of that was under ten million, and it grossed about a hundred million, which is insane. Again, in nineteen seventy eight, that's a huge amount of money. And then his, got his to, last film that he made was in twenty sixteen. Rules don't apply. Yeah, he directed it. By, uh, uh, yeah, by he plays Howard Hughes, Hughes in it. Yeah, 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 that's right. And Aldrin Ellen Wright is in it too. I think. I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't a massive amount of interest in seeing it. Um, no. I think the I think the Aviator is a great film. Um, mm. And I've read a book about Howard Hughes. I think I'm all Howard Hughes out. I don't need to see what That's he reckons. Fair. I completely forgot about the Aviator. That's true. And that <laughs> I really took care of the Howard Hughes thing. Yeah, who needs you after now? After that, Howard Hughes. Interestingly enough, though, I'm I'm uh, a slight side note. I'm reading at the moment the book. Uh, on which Martin Scorsese's next film is going to be oh, was based. That the, was it the Flower, Flowery, Flower, The killer, Killers of the Fra- Flower Moon. I read like right. a, a lot of it in the last two days. I think that's going to be pretty fantastic. And I know you're not much for the reading, but I, I do recommend if you want to track down an audiobook of this or just even, yeah. like it's a, it's a short enough book. It's a cracker of a read. Absolutely excellent. Film. Okay, fair enough. But shall, yeah, I give, the, uh, shall I go through the plot? Do, do, rocket through the plot. In 1915, married journalist and suffragist Louise Bryant encounters a radical journalist, John Reed, for the first time at a lecture in Portland, Oregon, and is intrigued with his idealism. When did, um, when did women get the vote in the US? When was women's suffrage? Not late enough. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That's uh, why I brought it up. Yeah, it was just to... I don't know. I don't know. But I feel like it's been downhill ever since, hasn't it? 19... 19- 17? Surely not. No, they must have gotten it before then. Canada's ni- 1920. Well, no. 1920. I, w- it's 1920. Tw- no, it was 1918 women, in the No, 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 no. Women don't have the vote in America. Otherwise, there would have been a lady president by now, surely. After meeting him for an interview on international politics that lasts an entire night, where they get to yeah. drink a lot of coffee, eh? And they don't even bone or anything. She realizes that writing has been her only escape from her frustrated existence. Inspired to leave her husband, Bryant joins Reed in Greenwich Village, New York City, and becomes acquainted with the local community of activists Uh-oh. and artists, including anarchist and author Emma, Emma Goldman and the playwright Eugene O'Neill. Hey, evil hippies in Tweed are still evil hippies. <laughs> That's what I say. No, hippies were classier back then. Fair play to them. But she's, they're asking her, what do you write? And she's like, oh, you know, well... Pretty, you know, everything. yeah, she's like Jessica from fucking <laughs> Spaced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I write a bit of everything, so she's obviously getting slammed for that. Her leaving her husband, we don't see, her husband gets ditched very early in the film, and yeah, yeah, and nary another look at him. Nary another look at him. Yeah, I want to watch his film. What happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> Follow him. Make he a biopic of him out, out, of, out of spite. <laughs> just yeah. the incel community funds it. <laughs> Later, they moved to Provincetown, Massachusetts to continue on their writing, becoming involved in the local theater scene. Yes, and I heard that place was famously gay, but it doesn't seem very gay to me there. Provincetown. Oh, yeah. Where have I heard about that? Oh, it was on my Jade Secret podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. But I heard about it before that, uh, to sure. be fair. Yeah, when you were there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I wasn't there, but I looked it up one time and I was like, oh, hello. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's famously gay. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, not in this. Not in this. As a matter of fact, here it's famously straight. You could say very much so. Through her writing, Bryant becomes a feminist and radical in her own right. Reed becomes involved in labor strikes with the Reds of the Communist Labor Party of America. Obsessed with changing the world, he grows restless and heads for St. Louis to cover the 1916 Democratic National Convention. During Reed's absence, Brian falls into a complicated affair with O'Neill. Do you want to fuck me a little bit while Jack's away? <laughs> My name's Eugene O'Neill. Where's the whiskey? I want some. Uh, yeah, he seems to drink a lot, doesn't he? I'm surprised his penis works. I can't imagine that Eugene O'Neill was at all in any way like Jack Nicholson. Why I couldn't do you find say that? any interviews with him. Well, apparently he like didn't look like him. No, but. I saw a picture of him. He looked like... Uh, I know Nicholson was supposedly too old at the time, um, but apparently he showed up to set looking all right. It, this was um, the this film he made immediately after The Shining. After The Shining. I heard he looked awful. <laughs> no but spring I don't know. I just, I just feel like Eugene O'Neill, I think he captures some of it. Like that sort of so cynical kind of quietly he's withering some of the stuff he says to uh louise is, is oh yeah harsh. yeah he's, he's i like that their last scene together is she, like he's just so bitter and it's yeah. fantastic that fit where she goes to see you him can in see New his York. irish uh side there would he have been first generation irish or irish american he won the nobel prize didn't he uh he was born in new york city yeah, he's the son of Irish immigrant actor James O'Neill and Mary Ellen Quinlan, who was of Irish descent. So just his father was Irish. And yeah, he he won a Nobel Prize, didn't he? He did. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1936. He won four Pulitzers. He won a Tony Award for Best Play. No. And his great-granddaughter is going to be in the Avatar sequels. That's pretty How cool. How about that? How about that? Wow, man, just goes to show. Families are always rising and falling in America. That's right. His his great-granddaughter is uh, Una Chaplin from uh, the one who got her throat slit at the Red Wedding. Ah, I also just, I, I quoted uh, I quoted Leonardo DiCaprio from The Departed quoting Hawthorne. <laughs> That's nice. And Martin Sheen says, uh, who said that? And DiCaprio says, Hawthorne. To which Wahlberg replies, what's the matter, smartass? You don't know any Shakespeare? If I was on one of the planes, there'd still be one tower standing. <laughs> that's, that's good. And Martin Scorsese he just goes, cut, cut, cut. Mark, can you cut it out? Can you cut it out with that? Stop telling people you to stop 9-11. The rat symbolizes Muslims. <laughs> anyway, um, they Jack gets back and they're done. Wait, dirty okay, dogging yeah, I'll keep going. That's right. Yeah, so the old Jack Nicholson pretending to be he's pretending to be Eugene O'Neill, but we know it's Jack Nicholson as himself. So yeah, so uh, Louise Bryant and Eugene O'Neill are boning, and then Hell John yeah. Reed, John Jackie Reed comes back. Upon his return, Reed discovers the affair and realizes he still loves Bryant. The two marry secretly, secretly and make a home together in Croton-on-Hudson. Croton-on-Hudson, north of New York City, but still have conflicting desires. When Reed admits his own infidelities, Brian takes a ship to Europe to work as a war correspondent. Have well, you read anything about uh, Reed's own uh, infidelities? Well, I mean, are they just like Warren Beatty's? No, there's a particular, well, Warren Beatty's another story, but no, there's a particular line in the Wikipedia article. I'm just going to bring it up now. <laughs> Hold on. 
that made me laugh a lot. The rest of 1914, he spent drinking with French prostitutes and pursuing an affair with a German woman. Yes, that's it. There we go. <laughs> that's exactly of the line. 1914. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a lot. That's that's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Just on the booze with French hookers, affair with the German lady, living the life. So when Reed admits his own infidelities, Brian takes a ship to Europe to work as a war correspondent. After, f- after a flare-up of a kidney disorder, Reed is warned to avoid excessive travel or stress, but he decides to take the same path. And he has his kidney removed. Nice. In like 1917 or something. Reunited as professionals, the two find their passion rekindled as they're swept up in the fall of Russia's Tsarist regime and the events of the 1917 revolution. That's the intermission. The, That's the first half. The short scene where John Reed finds... Bryant in a camp in an encampment during World War One. Just to compare that to all the World War One scenes in the <laughs> yeah. Razor's Edge, like just the the level, the attention to detail for just a few shots makes all the difference, you know. But Reds never had like a white ambulance with Harvard guys. <laughs> yeah, and that was their by That's choice. What was missing? Oi, 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 oi. That was the best bit. Yeah, no, so, yeah, but we I mean, have our little before the intermission, though, they, like that's when they like they get to Moscow, don't they? And we get to see Lenin going around doing his thing. And I think, no? do we see a little bit of it? I think we no, I think we see a tiny bit just before the intermission. Yeah, no, I think yeah, we do. I think we, yeah, we do see Lenin. Do you know about um, how Lenin ended up in Russia? I thought, I thought he was Russian. So, well, no, no, he was, but uh, during he was exiled by the Tsar, and um, like an ideological bomb uh the kaiser loaded him up on a train and uh sent him <laughs> or like smuggled him into russia nice. um with the intention of him collapsing the regime and getting the russians to surrender and uh he fucking did it worked <laughs> solid is <laughs> a mate, one man like yeah it's crazy it all, it all went fine for the kaiser in germany good job if you if you ever read um Martin Amos's book about uh, Soviet Russia, Cobra the Dread, he's obsessed with how stupid... Uh, <laughs> it's very funny. He's obsessed with how stupid um, Lenin is, because Lenin spe- apparently spent like days trying to puzzle out how 7 by 3 could possibly equal 21. <laughs> apparently that's a real thing. Anyway, go on. The second part of the film takes place shortly after the publication of 10 Days That Shook the World. That was uh, the book that Jack Reed wrote. One of the big critics of the book was uh, Joseph Stalin Hmm. because he was only mentioned in it twice and one time was just like listing off names. So in 1924, when Stalin came to power, he basically banned the book for years and years and said it was all bullshit. You can't please everyone. So far, so Stalin. Yeah, this is it. Inspired by the idealism of the revolution, Reed attempts to bring the spirit of communism to the United States because he's disillusioned with the policies imposed upon communist Russia by Grigory Zinoviev and the Bolsheviks. While attempting to leave Europe, he's briefly imprisoned and interrogated in Finland. He returns to Russia and is reunited with Brian at the railway station in Moscow. This completely skips out the chunk of him going yeah, to Baku. Yeah, going to Baku, yeah. And then having his speech translated as, we were going to mount a holy war against the infidels in the West. He caused 9-11, basically. He's just like um, Sylvester Stallone. And like, there's a whole interesting backstory about that trip to Baku because the Soviets were obsessed with that. They knew, like, I mean, everybody at this point knew, okay, the future is going to be crude oil. And um, the Soviets knew that they, they, they would need a stronghold of that. 
which is why they aimed for Baku. By this point, Reed is growing progressively weaker as a result of spotted typhus. Brian mm. helps nurse the ailing Reed, who eventually dies. Yeah, I really enjoyed that scene of uh, Warren Beatty running away from the train as yeah. the, the like white and red army are fighting. <laughs> He's just doing like a whole Forrest Gump thing across the desert. Um, and also... Because you don't know exactly if he's going to arrive on that train, the scene where she eventually sees him, I think, is a brilliant reveal. Yeah, she thinks he's dead. Yeah, no, but I mean, you know he's probably not dead, but you don't exactly know he's going to be arriving on that train, I found. Well, I knew he died of typhus. Well, there you go. From, from um, reading something about his life. Yeah, yeah, and it ends with with his end. Right? It just, yeah. he dies, credits roll. And that's the end of Russia. Yeah, yeah. Um, a really beautiful movie. I would recommend it to people. I would watch it again. Um, yeah, good stuff. It was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won three. Did it, it, did it win? It won Best Director, didn't it? Yeah. He, he won Best Director. Did it win Best that's Picture? Right. It did not. It lost to uh, Chariots of Fire. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a better film than Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I'm just yeah, well, the uh, other that for the record. Best, the other film, our big film that lost Best Picture was Rages of the Lost Art. Oh, I mean, that's a better film than both of these, but I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, for me, it's too much peak fun of the form. to win, yeah. to win it's Best too, there you go. Too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's too much fun. It's <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll have none of that here. Uh, what else did it win? Uh, screenplay? Uh, best Supporting Actress for Maureen Stapleton that played Emma okay. Goldman. And uh, best cinematography for Vittorio Storaro. Fair play, yeah, well deserved. Was Francis Ford Coppola's guy on Apocalypse Now, and he also did The Last Emperor. Well, and The Last Emperor is another film that evokes a period really well. But mm-hmm. uh, ah, that's he... true. That's another big epic that definitely captured that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's the story of a life, and that's 1987, I think. Is it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to fire through just very, very quick things about cast members. Do, do, Di- do. Uh, uh, Diane Keaton got nothing to say apart from her, her general kookiness. I'm mad that she has like dated all these, all these guys. How she's this, uh, you know, she's I, such a... This is, this is the only film where I was watching it going, God, I do <clears> kind of <throat> get it. I'm not I, sure. I, and at this point, she would have been old enough, no? She was in her 30s. Oh, she was only in her 30s making this? No way. There's yeah. no way that's correct. Yeah, she was young. Really? Well, how do you think she was? I would have thought she was in her 40s. She was born in 1946. She was in her mid-30s. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. And how old was the Wasbeats? The Waza? So Warren B was in his early 40s. Famous hound dog? Yeah. What's there to say about Warren Beatty? He's like that kind of guy. He was like a big high school football star. He got offered scholarships, but he turned them down because he wanted to study uh, theater at college. And then he dropped out of college and he went to, um, he studied under Stella Adler at the act, the, the actor's studio. And uh, he really sort of uh, got in with a group of different actors and directors. He was only 29 when he was in Bonnie and Clyde. He's so emblematic of the movie Brad era um, mm-hmm. for a few different roles. Well, particularly Bonnie and Clyde, obviously, but it's also Shampoo, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and I'm sure there's more than that. But uh, yeah, emblematic movie star of his era, to be fair to him. Next up is Paul Servino. 
Hmm. He played uh, Louis Freina, the okay. Italian communist. Yeah, 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 yeah. When it was revealed that Harvey Weinstein had sexually uh, harassed his daughter, Mira Servino, uh, he said, this is what uh, Paul Servino said, he's going to go to jail. Oh yeah, that son of a bitch. Good for him if he goes, because if not, he has to meet me and I will kill the motherfucker. Real simple. If I'd known it, he wouldn't be walking. He'd be in a wheelchair. This pig will get his comeuppance. Nice. Yeah. So he, he threatened death on on uh, Harvey Weinstein. Hell yeah. Well, Meryl Streep thanked him a bunch of times. She said, but thank now, you, Harvey. That's right. That's right. But unfortunately, Paul Servino died this year. Ah, oh, fuck. He's now he a could, friend of the show. He's gone. He so could have. Well, he's, a, he's an extra friend of the show for just being a public badass. That's and saying, right. yeah, I would have killed that motherfucker. I like that. What, he, oh yeah, what? sure. Of course he died. Sorry for interrupting you. Sure, he's Paulie from Goodfellas, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 he's, yeah. He knows how to slice garlic real thin. And fucking, he could have sliced fucking Harvey Weinstein's mangled penis off. And I'm not referring mm-hmm. to the fact that he was circumcised. Of course, he had a a famously mangled penis. We'll do right, another. We'll do a special episode of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He injected all that stuff into it. Cock juice. <laughs> that's right. That's what, they, that's what they called him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, old, old cock juice Weinstein. <laughs> Maureen Stapleton, who played uh, Emma Goldman. Like I said, she uh, studied at the actor studio under Lee Strasberg with Marilyn Monroe, and they were good friends. But then cool. Stapleton stayed alive. Monroe did not. Oh. William Daniels, who appeared in the film as Julius Gerber, who I think is like one of the American communist guys. Yeah, Gerbys, exactly. (laughs) William Daniels, famous for playing Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World. (laughs) (laughs) That's a show I haven't thought about in a long time. (laughs) It's funny to even hear those three words together. (laughs) And he was also the voice of Kit from Knight Rider. No, that's something, Respect. huh? How good is that? And There's always in, a uh, canal. Respect, you know, big respect for that. In, he was in Black Sunday. He was in the Parallax View. He's in the Black Sunday I love. as well. He played Mr. Braddock. Nice. Respect. Mucho respecto. Yeah. George Plimpton, who appeared in the film as Horace Wiggum. He went to Harvard with Robert Kennedy. And at the time of Robert Kennedy's assassination, George Plimpton was one of the guys who helped wrestle Sirhan Sirhan to the floor. Bit late, eh, George? (laughs) Could have done better there. Jerzy Kaczynski, who played Grigory Zinoviev, he wasn't an actor, particularly. He was the writer of um, Hal Ashby's Being There. Well, he wrote the novel that was adapted into that. It's a very good movie. But um, he was also, he was friends with Roman Polanski. And Uh-oh. just narrowly missed out on being at, uh, at their house when uh, Sharon Tate was murdered. Oh, wow. Towards the end of his life. He died in 1991 when he was 57 years old. He'd been accused of plagiarism frequently. And he was suffering from various illnesses. So he committed suicide by ingesting a lethal amount of alcohol and drugs and wrapping a plastic bag around his head. Jesus, that's a way to go. Yeah, it was, he didn't mess around. He was a Polish Jew who survived World War II. Yeah, and to rhyme is not a crime, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And on that bombshell, that's the end of Reds. Hell yeah, great movie. Solid, and it also had Gene Hackman in it. Yeah, it did, just in a Gene bit Hackman's. part. Playing like kind of an editor, 
I, I gathered. Yeah, the, the sexiest editor. Yeah, I mean, Gene Hackman has sex appeal. We're just too straight to understand it, but women know. Soundtrack for this film written by Stephen Sondheim. Yes, which I didn't pick up much of. No, I don't remember any of the music from this. Yeah, none of it seemed like... Show tunes. Yes, that's that's a, a kinder word than the one I was going to use. <laughs> yeah, okay. Had a great time with this. Are we tossing? We certainly are. Let's toss these cells. Let's. I'll toss your salad. How about that? I have one. What are you bringing to the table, Sunshine? Well, we originally were going to do this because we've missed a week, so this was going to be coming up for Halloween, <laughs> but this is going to be coming out after Halloween sometime mm-hmm. when we eventually talk about these two films. But we were going to pick horror films, and I chose 2008's UK horror film Eden Lake, starring old Mickey Fassbenders. Yeah. Some bird. And some bird is in it as well, yeah. yeah. And and Plan B, I think the rapper Plan B is also in it. That's right, um, the famous uh, morning after pill rapper. Yes, this is it. Um, yeah, okay, I can't, you've never seen uh, Eden Lake. That, uh, it's quite a horrifying movie. I haven't, I know, I know the beats of it, but I haven't seen it. I know it's got old Thomas Turgoose in it as well. Well, not that... Uh, not that I don't always hope I win, but uh, I remember Eden Lake as being particularly horrifying. So I kind of do hope I win this week. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm bringing to the table in reaction to having just last week, uh, as I mentioned, uh, watched Brian De Palma's classic, which we watched in this podcast, Dressed to Kill. Uh, I want to catch. I want uh, want to catch up to what people reckon would have been his first step into the macabre and away from the quirky indie Greenwich Village type movies he was making. Uh, so 1972's Sisters. Mm. A classic, I'm sure. Apparently so. All right. So, got a 20 and got a kind of a Statue of Liberty style lady with a stick and it says yeah, RF, RF beside her. Yeah? Yeah. Liberty, good for you. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. And the winner is 20. Boo. Yeah, bro- boy. Yeah. You want to hear what uh, you would have yeah, won? Yeah, what were you going to pit? Well, going from the, you know, general phobia of, you know, different people, I was going to go with uh, maybe one of the originals in the genre, uh, apart from maybe Deliverance or Southern Comfort. I was going to go for Wes Craven's 1977 horror film, The Hills Have Eyes. The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Which I've never seen. Yeah. Um, okay. What are we pairing up with uh, Brian De Palma? <laughs> Oh, well, no. I just yeah, <laughs> I decided to choose another big horror film from 1972, oh. which I think I've only ever really seen referenced in old episodes of The Simpsons, and that is Blackula. Blackula, I've never seen Blackula. <laughs> I've heard it's good 70s, though. Yeah, 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 70s exploitation horror. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so brilliant. You can watch Blackula, Blackenstein, and the. Uh, Blanche Black, a blotch of blame. Oh, God, I'm I'm quite, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Because, I mean, Sisters is supposed to be quite schlocky fun as well. It's De Palma okay. in 72, so I'm sure you can imagine. And, yeah, I've, this, I'm on the webpage of we Blackula right now. This looks wild. Here. Yeah. This looks totally wild. Okay, this is going to be a lot of fun. Also going to be a lot of fun. Um, I haven't watched the trailer, but I only saw the poster for it and have seen some smidgens of reviews. Uh, I'm really looking forward to watching this week's film, which is just out on VOD uh, as we record this. Yeah. Um, called Barbarian. Barbarian. 
Yeah, directed by who? Written by who? Who knows? We'll talk about that next week. Are, one of the guys from the whitest kids, you know, the one who didn't go head first out of his out of his window. What's that guy called? Trevor Moore. I don't know. Who are the whitest kids? You know, they're they were a, a '90s sketch group or early 2000s sketch group. And one of them killed themselves. I th- he didn't. Ki- I don't think it's suicide. It's a weird one. He was drunk and. He'd just been live streaming. This was like during COVID. Oh, wow. And he, I mean, went head for, he went out his window off his balcony head first. My God, man. Maybe it isn't the curse of the razor's edge. Maybe it's the curse of call it friendo. <laughs> yeah, I guess. We're killing these people. Everybody connected to the show just seems to die. Watch out, John Spillan. That's what I say. We're coming for you. Hell yeah. All right. Um, well, nothing else to say, but uh, I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.